definitely love to be part of the community and feel like we're all working together to make better coffee for the district down here. Welcome back to Drip, a DC coffee podcast. I'm your host, Austin Brower. Have you started to see a sleek logo that's two coffee cups for glasses and ruffled hair? That's Greg. Yes, the Greg of Gregory's Coffee. Greg Zamfotis and I talked over expertly made AeroPress coffee about what it was like to start a company now with 29 cafes, the most recent three being in DC. Gregory's Coffee is relatively new to DC, opening in November of 2017. No matter, Greg is not shy about becoming a part of the DC coffee community and making great coffee for all Washingtonians. In this coffee talk, we explore his journey into the coffee world and the similarities and differences between the New York and DC coffee scenes. So sit back, grab your cup of coffee, and enjoy the episode. So here with Gregory Zamfotis, who owns Gregory's Coffee, just moved into DC, but I know we were talking a little bit earlier, I think it's really exciting that you're coming into the city and I'm glad that I get a chance to talk to you about some of the impetus behind it and your experiences in coffee. So thanks for being here. Yeah, happy to be here. I feel like we've been in New York now for 11 years. We started in 2006 and we've been continuously growing over the course of those 11 years up in New York. As I mentioned to you offline just now, we're up to about 26 locations in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Jersey City, which Jersey City, Brooklyn, they're Manhattan adjacent. So it's all kind of New York. For a while, we've been thinking about working on trying our model and our concept in a different city. We're still a family-run business and, you know, no big corporate bucks behind us like a lot of my peers. So doing something like that was kind of a big undertaking for us to get our ducks in a row, get organized and set up a whole nother system in another city. We were thinking about doing something drivable or close by. So you're thinking Mm -hmm. from New York as the hub, you think of maybe Boston, Philly, DC would probably be the three most logical areas make it easier to manage for us to kind of reach with like the roasting facility and our centralized operations in New York. So I went to school up in Boston. I went to Boston University undergraduate, so I was pretty familiar with the city. I like the city a lot, but visiting Boston, Philly, and DC, I just felt DC just feels like booming to me. I mean, I've never seen more cranes. There's just work being done everywhere. There's a lot. A lot of expansion, you know, and it felt like in the center of the city, like the business centric areas, it felt a lot like New York did to us a long time ago where there really weren't just a lot of great options for coffee other than Starbucks. I mean, in DC, you've got a few Pete's, you know, maybe like nine or 10 Pete's, but you know, there's 200 or so Starbucks, nine or 10 Pete's, and then nobody else has more than like four or five shops, really. And even a lot of those shops are located not in the centralized work areas. So we kind of made our name for ourselves in New York, being like the company that can go into the center of the city, do the busy volumes, be the kind of resource for specialty coffee in places where that usually wasn't found. Mm-hmm. So when we were started this process about two years ago, like, and I had finally decided, I said, you know what? I, DC is a great town. It's manageable to get here from New York. I love the burgeoning foodie scene and, you know, the development of more artisanal sort of food and beverage operations popping up here and there. And not to say it wasn't here before, but it just Mm. felt like really popping when I was coming down. And more people I spoke to, I got the same kind of impression that it was really like on this verge of just turning over into like a whole really special place. And all these new developments, whether it's H Street, 14th Street, you know, Shaw District, you know, the Navy Yard, the Wharf, lots of cool things happening in the city. We really just wanted to be here. 
once we started going along the process with our real estate team and finding things, we were finding really great opportunities, including this one we're in 1900L Northwest. Great spot. Yeah, yeah. This was the first deal we actually signed. I think we were locking horns with Pete's. They had for this spot. Yeah, for this spot. You know, the landlord was considering us or Pete's and they wound up giving the deal to us. We were very thankful for that. Yeah. And yeah, we were off and running from there. So we signed three deals within like a few months of each other. This one we're at 1900L Northwest, 1000 Vermont Northwest. Mm -hmm. So Vermont and K right over there. Those two are open right now. And the third one on 20th and M is not open for business of the public just yeah. yet. The baking, the food operation, right, my training center, okay. our offices, like all that kind of little mini commissary hub for us to kind of operate out of. It's yeah. a bigger space. It's about 3,000 feet on two floors. The second floor, it's more of like a mezzanine, but you know we've got about 750 feet up there. So mm -hmm. we've got space to do all of our training, our education, our, all the fun stuff that we like to do and a little office to kind of keep things organized. Yeah. And then the downstairs, the front half is a coffee shop like you'd see, and then the back half is our bakery. Nice. Uh, and that'll be open soon. And then one more in the spring, also okay. kind of in this similar corridor on a 1101 Connecticut Ave. So Connecticut and L basically. Okay. Um, Are you gonna kind of settle in, see how things go and continue to expand or I feel what's like the strategy? If you're allowed to share. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, I think I was excited with the initial openings of these first two locations. Yeah. We opened at a weird time for our business, just kind of like a thousand Vermont. We actually got open first. It's a much smaller space. It was easier for us to turn it around, but opened actually the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Okay. So an interesting time to open. That, you know, that would had, be. You know, had a couple good days training. and then went into the holiday and then it picked back up after the holiday and then we went right into Christmas and New Year's. Uh, in this location, we opened the third week of December. Okay. So similarly, or second week of December. So similarly, saw some good traction and then immediately went into the holidays. And I think, you know, early January is always kind of like a cold holiday time. People are, yeah. you know, schools aren't back in session yet. So that being said, the initial results were really exciting and we've been happy with the results. So I've definitely been pounding the pavement looking for some more things haven't signed anything just yet just the four locations for now but yeah. um i've tasked my my broker and the real estate team to kind of find us some really other interesting opportunities and i think landlords have now started to like see what we're all about anybody yeah. who knew us from new york was already kind of familiar and excited to give us opportunities but a lot of dc-based folks maybe had never seen our operations up in new york so mm -hmm. it's much easier to just pop over to, to 19 and l than to get up into midtown manhattan yeah so and they've given me really great feedback about what they've seen. Nice. And that's probably, they have just some confidence in you in general, since you have three or four locations. Yeah. Throughout I the mean, city, seeing so. the locations open up instills confidence for sure. But even just looking at the quality of the build out, and that means a lot to landlords that it looks good. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're putting money into the space. We're not just kind of throwing things together. And, you know, yeah. the quality look and feel it helps the building. It's an yeah. amenity to the building. And then, of course, having a great product and good service and clean operation also is a good thing for us, which helps landlords want to give us more spaces. Yeah, for sure. Well, hopefully. That's exciting. And to go back a little bit, what got you into coffee? Kind of an interesting story. Okay. I sort of grew up in the food and beverage business. My father had delis, pizza places, burger places, sandwich places. Like, you know, he had been in um, food and beverage business since like the mid-70s in New York, okay. right? I sort of grew up having a father who was in that kind of food world, and I would always be helping my dad. You know, he'd bring me to work with him when I was young, help him out when I was a little bit older during summers or breaks and things like that. So it's kind of like, I don't know, I think about it like this Malcolm Gladwell experience where like, you know, 10,000 hours, I, I want to gaining a lot of experience that maybe a lot of other people wouldn't have been able to have because not as many people have 
parents or fathers who have this business that they're able to bring their kids in at such an early age just to experience certain things. And my father was always very much like wanted to just throw things at me and just kind of test me to see what I was able to handle managing certain employee issues or whatever it may have been. Wow, at a young age. Very, yeah. yeah. He you had, probably had people older than you. Yeah, yeah like, you know, when I'm like 14 years old telling grown men to like tuck their shirts in and <laughs> straighten out their hats or make sure they're doing things the right way. You know, at the time I was like maybe a little bit nervous, but it definitely set me up mentally or prepared me to do a lot of things that would have come later in life. But mm-hmm. all that being said, I didn't always think I was going to go into this business. I, I went to Boston University as undergraduate studying finance, thinking I was going to work in banking. I had a cousin who had done that a little bit older than me and had been pretty successful doing it. So it just seemed like something interesting. Did you like the numbers and the finance part? I'm good at math and you know, I, I felt like I had a talent for it. I did work at Morgan Stanley okay. during uh, summers and during college breaks, but uh, they offered me a job. But at the same time, I felt I could do that job, but it wasn't exciting to me. I was, I just, I didn't feel the love. So I went back to school my senior year and speaking like just counselors and some teachers who had gotten to know me over the years and they kind of steered me towards law school and thought because I liked the business aspect of things but maybe like the banking side wasn't exactly as interesting to me maybe more like higher level corporate strategy mergers acquisitions more like Mm -hmm. high level kind of things that maybe legal corporate law would be something more interesting to me and it did sound interesting so I took the bait and I went right to law school. I came back to New York. I went to Brooklyn Law School. Right out of college. Right out of college. Right into it. So making similar mistake, going straight to college without ever trying anything out first or uh, really understanding what I might be getting myself into. So same sort of thing. I did well my first year. I got a good internship. And I kept saying to myself, I could do this for a couple of years or a few years, maybe make some money. But at some point, I, gotta do, I want to do something else, uh, something on my own. At the time, I thought maybe it was... A boutique gym or a restaurant I didn't really know okay but what I did know was that I was not fully confident in myself to be able to do this law thing long term so I kind of approached my father and said I'm thinking of maybe you've got this set up business all these businesses around New York why don't I help you run one of your stores with the mindset of thinking about it as a potential career and not just helping out my dad so mm-hmm. He was like, are you sure? Is this what you want to do? Et cetera, et cetera. You know, obviously I'm in the middle of law school. Yeah, doing well. Uh, and doing all this stuff. I was just like, yeah, I think I really just need to like see if this is something I might want to do. And it'll allow me to do this, not risk-free, but like, you know, to try doing something at my dad's place as a setup opportunity and really understand if it's for me. I wound up going in and he had a deli or a sandwich shop that I was able to help him run while I was finishing my second year of school. And I wound up really liking it. I didn't love... The particular sandwich shop business that I was in, but I liked managing, I liked creating things with my hands, I liked interacting with people, being on my feet, just that like daily activity. Just because I think back then in the early 2000s, this fast casual food business was not glamorous. Now you hear like, you know, Sweet Greens or or all these other kind of companies that have made it cool to like work in food, but 15, 20 years ago, it was like, you know, restaurants were cool. I guess cafes people found to be cool, but Mm -hmm. that sandwich business, all that kind of stuff was not perceived to be interesting or like you wouldn't be proud to tell somebody I work in a sandwich shop. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the perception I had growing up. Like I wanted to do something different. As I got into it more, I felt like I could do this business, but I wanted to find something that was more mine, something more I could sink my teeth into. 
I always thought I was some kind of coffee aficionado because I went to Starbucks, but I didn't get, you know, lattes. I would get a macchiato. So I was like, thought I was a little bit more <laughs> elevated, not caramel macchiatos or any of that kind of stuff. Obviously, I didn't know a fraction of what I know now. But at the time, I said, you know, I thought there was an opportunity to do something really interesting with coffee in New York. Like I said, in the early 2000s, there weren't very many especially coffee shops in the middle of the city. Kind of like what I what I noticed a little bit yeah. here in D.C. Mm-hmm. Now it's quite different. But 12, 15 years ago, you'd go to Grand Central, Times Square, busy, busy parts of the city where you'd expect to see just tons of options. Yeah. And Starbucks, 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 Dunkin', Dunkin', Dunkin'. And that was about it. So I said, I think we have an opportunity to do something really, really great here. So I approached my father about helping me get started with opening a coffee shop. He was okay with it. I finished law school. I passed the bar and mm-hmm. went straight into doing Gregory's Coffee. Nice. Uh, and so we, that was the first shop. There's no like multiple iterations. It was Gregory's Coffee from the beginning. Yeah, Gregory's Coffee right across from Credit Suisse headquarters, 24th and Park Avenue South in New York. Okay, kind of like a block and a half away from the uh, original Shake Shack. So yeah, we got started in 2006, and admittedly, the coffee program wasn't particularly special, but we came a long way since then. Yeah, so that's kind of long with the way of how I found myself in the coffee industry, but I didn't grow up thinking like my whole life, all I want to do is have a coffee shop or worked in coffee shops my whole life. It was kind of, I had a different sort of experience, which just led me to feel like I could do something on my own. And I took a perceived passion for coffee and an opportunity that I found a business opportunity and turned it into, you know, the love of my life, you know, this, this coffee company here. It really seems like you were trying to develop a name for yourself and it's nice you found the avenue of coffee to to do that absolutely yeah and for other people trying to so there's like this craze of of startups and passion pursuits or passion enterprises what advice would you have to people in dc who just want to kind of stop everything they're doing and start something well there's like two sides to that coin i'm obviously as an entrepreneur and somebody who's somewhat of a risk taker i'm always telling people to trust your gut and if you're passionate about something and you really care and you work really hard the odds of being successful are usually pretty good as long as you like there's a lot of other things involved there but really loving what you do and working really hard you know it's hard to match those kinds of things but at the same time I would say proceed with caution in that there's a lot of ways you can get in trouble whether it's like you know not thinking things through properly or signing personal guarantees on projects that are maybe a little bit too risky or not finding the right partners or Mm -hmm. not speaking to enough people. I had the benefit of having my father, you know, he had been in business for 30, 40 years. So a lot of the initial things that could get people in trouble, like what type of insurance should you get, you know, making sure like common problems you can find on leases, you know, obviously I had a legal background, but I'd never negotiated a retail lease before, you know, Mm -hmm. he was really able to like help me avoid doing things that could have gotten me into trouble. So There's a lot of things, whether it's a food business or any other kind of business, I think doing your homework and really making sure you're prepared and you know what you're getting yourself into. And I guess the only other thing I would say is be prepared to work really hard. Because anybody who starts with a startup, where people, I I found people who are in banking or other fields and they stop to do something their own thinking, uh, I don't know what they were thinking, but then they're really surprised with how much work is involved to start something up yourself. I mean... You know, my wife will tell you, me spending 70, 80 hours a week at work for the first few years was not uncommon, you know, and it's getting calls at midnight because of an issue or openers forgot their keys and, you know, somebody's got to open, somebody's got to do it, you know what I mean? So as the owner, as a founder, nobody's going to care more than you, hopefully, you know, you got to be really willing to like 
put in the work to make it happen. You know, mm-hmm. and if you do that, I think you'll find success. But you can't be afraid to put some elbow grease in there and really get in and make things happen because nobody's going to make it happen like you will. Yeah. A nice two sides of the coin there. And Yeah. I mean, it's like, can't be too trigger shy. Like if you got a really great idea and you're passionate about it and, you know, you're slugging away at your job and you're just really unhappy, I, I would love more people to be pursuing their dreams and being really, really loving what they do. But at the same time, I would say be careful because, yeah. you know, you don't want people to risk put big financial risks out there when they could have avoided some issues by just doing a little bit of research or work ahead of time. So Yeah, it's not as easy as the Gregory's or the apples of the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, people may see me come into a store and have a coffee, hang out with my staff, you know, talk, do certain things, sit down, do some computer work, and they may think like, oh, it still seems pretty easy compared to what I'm doing. But yeah. This is obviously 11 years in, and, you know, things a lot of things have happened. To them. But even that, it's like, you know, I may be looking quite calm, but I'm also maybe very busy and also might be doing things like that 13, 14 hours that day, you know, mm-hmm. that are, never really stops. Yeah. And some of the things you talked about applying them specifically to DC and the DC market, what were some of those barriers or issues that you came across moving into this market? So issues to get things started here, you mean? Yeah, to get things started or, or what came up that maybe you didn't expect, especially within yeah. applying it to coffee. As far as like basic things like the understanding a new city and how to build out a store and deal with the buildings department and inspection processes and new construction teams and all this kind of stuff because i've got a pretty well-oiled machine up in new york where Mm -hmm. i can open a store in three months two months you know wow from the signing of the lease as soon as i get the possession i'm off to the races it's not quite as fast down here even if i wanted to be and then there's more hurdles up front in D.C., whereas New York, it's much easier to get started, and then they continue to hit you years down the line okay. with like problems and inspections later. Whereas D.C., they don't let you get started with anything until everything is very buttoned up and perfect. So it's much more front-loaded here, which is now I've learned a few lessons about how to kind of avoid certain things later mm-hmm. on. But there are things like that, but I think as, as coffee-specific, I mean, I think I'm still learning what the profiles and what people are really looking for here i mean yeah. the early results have been pretty positive i think people have been really happy with the quality and speed of service and the quality of service yeah. and the type of things we offer so not uh, to stop you there but do you think that the interest and in taste profiles and origins and roast is different in dc than new york i haven't really found that you know i feel it's like you look at the weather the weather in new york and dc are the same it's like you know we're so close and it's like as a metropolitan city and you know yeah. Maybe if I were to go to a very rural area or places that have not experienced any sort of quality coffee before coming in with like a natural Ethiopian uh, AeroPress coffee might be a real shock to somebody who's been used to drinking coffee, you know, Starbucks coffee with milk and sugar for their whole lives. I feel like even though it's still early in the game for DC, as far as like especially coffee people coming into the main parts of the city and really giving great opportunities to try new things. So far, I feel like the program has been pretty well received and things people like in New York, they tend to like down here. But again, it's still, we're only in here for about two months so far. So the feedback is still pouring in. And if we were to get specific suggestions or things that people particularly did not like, yeah, we could definitely look into adjusting things on the fly. But so far, it's been pretty, pretty positive. Oh, that's good to hear. And then what about the customers? How are they different and how are they the same in New York? I will say there's a bigger percentage of guests in New York who are just so hell-bent on speed where they just they want to get in and out really fast. Yeah. Not to say DC is slower, but there are people who I feel like are a little bit more willing to wait. And in New York, you know, we're geared for speed, you know. I have stores that 
Times Square where the train unloads and a hundred people walk in the door oh, at the same, literally the same instant, and you got to process a hundred people fast. And what you say, they won't. Somebody who walks in won't wait for more than four or five minutes, right? Some of them, you know, like they'll come in and they'll see a massive line. And they'll either turn right out or they'll wait for a minute. And if they're not spoken to, they're ready to go. And, and I get it because I'm similar. I'm a New Yorker too. Like during lunch, I'll walk around and I see lines at salad places or any place I might want to eat. I'm like, I don't got time for this. So I'll figure something else yeah. out and wind up not eating half the times. But uh, there is a certain mentality in New York that people are just always seem to be in a rush. Maybe it's because the trains always seem to be late. So you can't afford to be waiting much longer. But so we've kind of, uh, yeah, same trains, problem here. Trains in New York are, you know, people love to complain. But yeah, I feel like people are just genuinely in a huge rush in New York where I feel down here so far, people seem to be willing to wait for a quality product. And even then we're not, I mean, we don't go slow down here by yeah, any I, means. That line was clipping along when I was Yeah, watching. so we... We just feel like we operate at the same kind of levels that we do up in New York. And people, I think, are maybe a little bit surprised at just like how quickly they can be processed. And they seem to just be really happy to have another option. And they feel like, I don't know how to really explain it, but it just feels like maybe like similar to New York type of guests, but who are just less um, demanding of extremely fast processing times. Whether or not we actually provide those times, which I feel like we do provide pretty fast processing times. We haven't been getting feedback about like people feeling like we're slow, where yeah. as fast as I might be in New York, sometimes people are like, you guys are just got to get your act together. You know, I expect my coffee in 30 seconds, not a minute and 30 seconds. And it's like, so, it, you know, it has to I'll steam do, for yeah, 30 seconds. Exactly. You know, it's like the guy who wants his well done steak prepared in under three minutes. And you're like, well, it's, it's kind of well hard to do yeah. that. You know, I got to need some time to cook this puppy if you want it well done. It's like, you know, if you want a, an AeroPress coffee, my whole recipe takes two minutes, so to prepare it and do it properly, you're looking at three to four minutes. If you want your AeroPress coffee in a minute, I can't give it to you. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's kind of hard sometimes to fit a square peg into a round hole, but we do our best to kind of flex on these situations. And I haven't noticed much of a, okay. a real difference, I think, between you know the type of people we're serving here in New York and in D.C. And I think that was also another really great reason we were interested in coming down here is that I did not perceive us needing to make any crazy adjustments to what we already do and what we're successful with mm-hmm. up in New York. Because I feel like the customer profiles and tastes, I feel are very similar. Like you see a lot of similar concepts yeah. in New York and in DC. A lot of New York concepts seem to be coming down here. Same thing, you know, a lot of DC concepts coming up to New York. So I feel like there are a lot of similarities with what people are looking for in the experience and the product in the two cities. So. Hmm. So you're talking a little bit about AeroPress, and I walked into your Vermont location mm-hmm. like two or three weeks ago, and the AeroPress bar was right there. I was like, all right, this mm-hmm. is cool. You can't really find this anywhere else in D.C. So do you mind just sharing with the listeners kind of what an AeroPress is and why you chose an AeroPress? I think it was like 2009 when we had started doing like a single-serve coffee program. We used to use this clever coffee dripper. I don't know if okay. you've seen those. I've heard of them. I've it's it's like a, a full immersion it looks like a V60 basket, but it's got a stopper on the bottom. Oh, and then you press it down. So and then you drips. just, when you're done with your infusion, you place it on top of a cup and it drains yeah. down. Okay. So you control certain elements of the process without having to use the gravity feed like you do with a Chemex or a V60. But I had started that, you know, using those um, tools in like as far back as 2009. And then we weaved in like French press. It was just much easier to use and <laughs> V60s and Chemex. We've tried multiple things over the years. And I think as the company has continued to grow, a lot of things come into play where I find there are a lot of places that obviously have pour over programs 
And depending on who brews that coffee, it will taste different. Mm -hmm. You know, if you pour a V60 and I pour a V60 and we use the same recipe, depending on the speed of your pour, the size of your concentric circles or little pauses or pulses or things that you may do slightly different than what I'll do will make dramatic differences in the extraction of that coffee. So other companies may be willing to accept a wider range of extraction and finding that they're okay with that. I found it a little bit more unsettling to think that, you know, from customer to customer, there might just be a totally different taste in coffee. So it's much harder for me to control the quality and the consistency when we've got, you know, 275 team members brewing coffee. I felt the AeroPress was a way to make a super consistent coffee. You control a lot more of the variables and there's much less room for error if you follow the recipe and you stick to the basic guidelines. We train people, we test them, we retest them. We're constantly making sure that, you know, the basic recipe we do have is being followed. And we found a very consistent extraction. The fact that you do have a paper filter, you get a really clean cup. We feel like the time, it's a two-minute brew process. You know, sometimes V60s, Chemexes, these are like three, four, five-minute brew processes. Mm -hmm. So for us, we felt like there was just too many good things happening for the AeroPress to like not make it work for us, you know consistent, great quality, easy to train. It's just a faster brew method, I feel like, than others. So all those things combined just made it seem like a really great fit for what we do. Yeah. And then that being said, it's also like a little unique. A lot of people have never seen one or they're used to seeing the pour over at a lot of the other places and they haven't seen something like this. So it's a great conversation piece as well to kind of not only talk about what the AeroPress is, but to then open up the door to talk more about that coffee. Yeah. So, I mean, really, I mean, I guess I didn't really explain what the AeroPress was, but it is like this oversized plunger, it looks like. Yeah. Uh, we do this, it's called the inverted method. So it's like a, or maybe like a syringe, like a yeah. big giant oversized syringe. You flip it upside down, put the coffee inside, you pour the water over the bed of grinds, and then you're able to have the coffee and the water stay without dripping or doing anything like that yeah. for as long as you want. We do it for a fixed amount of time. And when you're ready, you attach the lid, flip it over, and you press directly into a vessel. So because you're adding an element of pressure, you know, you're pushing the coffee through, you're agitating the grinds, agitation speeds up extraction as well. So the full immersion, the pressure, these are things that allow for a quicker brew time. So you kind of mix elements of the French press where you have the full immersion where the coffee sits with the water for the entire brew process until you tell it to stop. So like a French press, you press down and you remove the grinds from the water or from the now from the brewed coffee. Mm -hmm. AeroPress the same, you press the coffee out. Whereas a traditional pour over, as you're pouring, it's dripping out of the bottom. So gravity is pulling the coffee out. Whereas a full immersion, the coffee sits with the water until you tell it you don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. So. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And it's... If you're listening and you haven't had AeroPress coffee, come try it at Gregory's because it's a different mouthfeel too. And it's, I do really like AeroPresses. So yeah, you get nice. a little more full body, like I said, with that full immersion. So like people who like the French press because it's like more thick, yeah. full bodied, heavier on your tongue. Obviously the French press, you get more oils and fines in there because there's a metal filter. There's not a paper filter. Mm -hmm. So you get the full body similar to a French press, but then you get a little more clarity like you might get on a B60 or a Chemex because of the paper filter. So you don't allow oils, fine sediments to get into your cup. So mm -hmm. it's a really interesting way of brewing. Coffee. Yeah, it's good stuff. You guys do it well. Thank you. And then, so I guess kind of two more themes. Sure. Roasting. You roast your own coffee, right? Up yes, in sir. New York and it gets here in about a day or two days, right? Really fresh. Yeah. 
like for example, they'll place an order on a Monday. Mm. It gets on the roast schedule for Tuesday, and then it's taken down here that night. So then we'll have it by Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, so it'll be like a day off roast. Obviously, we don't use coffee a day off roast. It's too fresh, and you'll get a lot of degassing coming out. So if you ever tried to use a lot of people, it's funny when people say, like, we only use fresh roasted coffee. If you were to use coffee that was roasted a day ago and you tried to brew it, you would see just so much bubbles and gas coming out of your mm -hmm. coffee because it hasn't had time to rest. So typically, our, you know, our coffee needs to be rested for at least three, four days before we like to use it. So we kind of time it so that way we're ending the last amount of roast order that we've used to last us three days into when we get the new batch. So that way we're not using coffee until it's about three to four days mm -hmm. off the roast. So we roast up in New York, and it's coming down here as fresh as we can. We yeah, want it to be the used. good fresh. I mean, the good fresh, every week. That's how we were running things down here. Yeah. And the operation up in New York has plenty of room to roast more coffee if we need to continue growing down here, which we plan on doing. So, did you start out roasting, or did you, from the get-go, bring somebody in to help roast? You mean once we started roasting? Yeah, in 2006, were you? No, we were using a full-service third-party roaster. Okay, so they bought the green coffee they roasted it they gave us a menu of options to say like these are the coffees you can choose from and you know they had pre-made blends and all that kind of stuff i mean at that time we had one shop it was yeah very little incentive for any roaster to kind of do custom things for us at that time so we bought what they were selling and brewed it per their specs on equipment we bought from them and then over the years we found a new partner as we had grown and was willing to maybe customize a program a little bit more towards us and they were interested in working together with us so they like shared the green coffee buying process with us a little bit they would kind of talk about the coffees we might be interested in and would purchase coffees we thought would work for us and then they would make custom blends based on you know a lot of other coffees they were already buying and also coffees they were buying mm -hmm. because we wanted them but again we weren't working with roast profiles or anything per se we didn't have any experience with that so yeah. they were still buying the coffee roasting the coffee and suiting it to the sort of blend profile we were thinking of whether you know we wanted it to be chocolate and hazelnut and a uh, little dark cherry like they would source some coffees that would help give us a blend that would suit that profile and again as we continue to grow and got more experience we started toll roasting which means we source and purchase the green coffee ourselves, the raw mm. product and have a third party roast to our spec pack and ship it back to us so it was kind of like a, our first dip in the water of getting more into that world of roasting so we started that around like i don't know 2014 2015. we liked the process we were learning a lot i had wanted to be roasting for a long time but it just needs to make sense yeah. financially and a lot of different reasons why finance background right there yeah so i said okay yes don't invest lots of money until you need to be roasting lots <laughs> yeah. of coffee right and it's going to pay itself back rather quickly we found the facility actually in early 2015, so we had only been toll roasting for a short amount of time, but it was pretty obvious the savings and the controls that we would have would be very important for us. So we found the space, we started building it out in 2015, and we partnered with this guy, Marty Curtis, who's somewhat of a legend in the coffee roasting world. He claims, I, I haven't been able to fully back it up, that he actually built Starbucks' first roaster in the 70s and has now gone on to he's like a he leads all the certified q grader courses okay, really? he has his business uh, they basically source used probot this german roasting company they make the he likes to use the old probot roasters because all the pieces are mm. fully iron where it's like 
Now, most company you can't because there's iron. They found that mining iron is actually very dangerous for people and for the environment. So there's not as yeah. much iron around anymore. Most new roasters use a lot of stainless steel, which just doesn't conduct heat the same way that iron that's does. So that's why these old roasters hold their value like an amazing way because yeah. the guts of the machine is just like a ton of metal and you want a very specific type of metal. It roasts a certain way. But the problem is they're super old and a lot of them are real beaten up and there's not that many people that are capable of refurbishing them and modernizing them to include some, you know, computer systems and probes mm -hmm. and all these sorts of things that we need. So Marty is one of the few that does do that. I had spoken with him and he sourced two roasters for us, a sample roaster, a 90 kilo, which is kind of like a, you know, almost like a 200 pound roaster in a shot and a 22 kilo. So it roasts about like 40 to 50 pounds in a shot. That's so, a lot of coffee. Yeah. So we're capable of doing like our big blends on the, uh, we actually like that 90 kilos, it's a big machine, but we like roasting on it because it's just so consistent. And once it gets up to temperature, because it's so big and all that iron in there just really holds that heat super well and it just puts out so it's amazing coffee. Hmm. The 22, smaller, like you can imagine you have a little bit more control and you can fine tune things a little bit more. We like the balance between having the really big, you know, not really, I mean, big for us, but a 90 kilo which is super consistent and puts out just like amazing quality on our blends. And then the 22 for our single origins, you know, some of the test batches that we do and we're constantly testing. That all started in 2016 when Marty that's finally exciting. got everything locked and loaded. And that's when we started roasting the full program ourselves from uh, sourcing the green, sample roasting it, developing the profiles, roasting mm -hmm. everything ourselves and supplying all the shops with everything nice so dc is getting the real stuff real, real stuff. stuff yeah i've tasked my team with just continually trying to make the program better obviously taking on more has afforded me cost savings not having to pay other people to do certain things so you know i was able to put more dollars into the green coffee and just continually buying better and better green coffee yeah which obviously helps making a better result at the end but you know having a team that also isn't just this is our blend and this is our profile and this is it. Like they're constantly testing things and checking how to potentially make things better. Yeah. Whether it's just because there's more moisture or in the time of year or the coffee may have aged or whatever you may be dealing with, you're constantly working and tweaking on things to make sure that the roast is coming out the best that it possibly yeah. can be. Huh. Well, it's good from the ones I've had and uh, some nice vertical integration is always good to... Yeah, as much as we can, it's, you know, unless I'm going to buy a milk farm maybe. Uh, yeah, you got to start... <laughs> Growing coffee in or, New York. you know, go down to Origin and, you know, talk to some farmers there about, you, you know, partnering down there. But, you know, as much as we can be at the moment, we're trying to take more control because we, we know when we put our heads into something and our hard work behind it, we usually see really great yeah. results. So this is a little different track of thought, but you're wearing glasses. Yes, sir. You got a hat so on. Are you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Your logo, because it's fun to see you and then see your logo on the cup right, right next to you. Where did it come from? Believe it or not, this is the third iteration of our logo. And I, I used to teach a class at the Specialty Coffee Association yearly conference. And part of it was about like innovation and, you know, staying ahead of the trends and these sorts of things. And one example I used to give was about my logo where we started. And like I said earlier, I felt comfortable running a business, but, you know, obviously had never run a coffee business before and it was still really new to me. So I kind of compare our logo's evolution to like our evolution as a coffee company. The first iteration was just Gregory's Coffee and some generic type with a little cup with steam coming out of it. A logo you've probably seen a thousand times across America or everywhere. It's not the most original idea. Yeah. But looking back, it makes sense. Like, you know, as much as I wanted to think we were especially coffee company, we were just a coffee shop doing some interesting things, but you know, the quality 
was not going to blow your socks off or anything mm. particularly great, but just getting started. And that was kind of like the first version of where we were at. About two and a half years later, as I started pushing us further and further into the third wave of coffee, like the new innovations, like the Clever Coffee Brewer, Latte Art in Every Cup, getting more involved with the sourcing of the coffees, like I said, when I changed into that other roaster, started building up a little bit more confidence and feeling better about the program and taking a look at the logo, feeling like, you know, I think we could do something a little bit better with that. Also, it was like the stamp of what we were about. So I hired a graphic designer, but again, nothing crazy it was gregory's coffee but now with a very specific type of like a more stylized type font and it turned the e in gregory's into a coffee bean okay you know? yeah so again subtle but it started actually at least like making us stand out slightly and at the time i thought it was great about a year and a half after that i had met a friend who was a web designer and he kind of said something like you know your website could use work. At the moment, it was just like a business card. It just kind of had like our logo, a conversion of our logo, and then like store hours and operations and like an email to contact, like really nothing about it. He's like, you know, you should be investing more in your website, et cetera, et cetera. And I was all about it. And he's like, well, while you're doing it, you should probably think about your logo. And I was like, what are you talking about? I just did my logo. I love my logo. And he was like, you know, well, I think it doesn't really speak to what the company is. Like, I don't look at it and feel the same thing I feel when I actually go through the experience of Gregory's. And I was like, you know, let me like hear him out. So he started showing me some potential options of based on the conversations we'd had, the experiences he had of what he thought our logo could be that could speak more to what we're all about. I was kind of intrigued with the first round of things he was sending me. And I was like, you know, I think we could actually, you know, some of it was infusing like the New York City skyline and, you know, all different kind of interesting options. But one of them included a silhouette of me. There was like a picture we had put up in the stores of myself actually it's in this store too the same picture okay. from 2008 uh, of myself drinking drinking an espresso one of the designers was looking at that and thought that seemed like an iconic type of image like the founder the owner drinking his own coffee and it kind of like stood out to this person whatever so they made a version of what we currently have but it was like the profile so the side view hmm. hard to imagine it but yeah it was interesting and you know it's also kind of interesting when you're going through logos to be like yeah let me put my face on the logo i was not like probably that big weird. Of, i am a pretty humble person and i don't like you know despite having gregory's coffee is the name you know <laughs> yeah. uh and then now the logo is my it, I, you might look at it and be like wow this guy's really full of himself but i mean that's really not <laughs> the case even though I could, I, that's just not how i go about things but the way that the logo evolved we were looking at different options and that just seemed like this iconic type of image. And because the name was Gregory's, the idea was we wanted to have like a face to the name. Yeah. Not necessarily my face, but like a likeness of what Gregory, as far as Gregory's coffee could be. So we kept pulling on that thread. And then eventually we came to this, which was, you know, we wanted something iconic. We wanted something people would see and remember and something that when they thought of Gregory's coffee was what they thought of. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize like Starbuck, you know, he got that name from, you know, Moby Dick. It's a name too. You know, Starbuck is the name of a character in Moby Dick. They obviously also have always had the iconic mermaid image and not to say I wanted to copy them or anything like that, but I think any brand or any company would love to have something about their company or image stand out and be memorable, really brand themselves and make people feel a certain way when they see that image, Nike with the swoosh or, yeah. you know, yeah, there's tons of, you go on and on. Does, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not comparing our logo to some of these, you know, multi-billion dollar companies, but people do really like it. And it kind of, again, it, it sort of dovetailed really nicely with how we were evolving as a coffee company. Yeah. And so this is like 2010, we're about to open our third shop. Things are going really well. Like the coffee was tasting great. 
the best that it ever tasted. You know, the staff was really well trained, doing really amazing things with the coffee at the time. It was also kind of a confidence thing. We were yeah. feeling like really great about the program, really great about what we were doing and really coming out with a logo that we felt was strong, bold, and sort of making a statement, we were excited to do it. So yeah. that's kind of how we got to this point. That's cool, thanks for sharing that. It's a cool logo. It'd be sweet to have a shirt. I like t-shirts, but a shirt with all your logos ah. and the kind of the iterations of the years. So I'm yeah. waiting for that and I'll buy a shirt. I will uh, put it on the docket. Yeah, put it on the docket. T-shirt development. There you go. For sure. Most important part of coffee. And then also just kind of random, some of Ann Pizza is a local DC place. Yeah. You've probably seen them, but they're in New York too now. Wow. Yeah. Okay. They open, I think, two or three shops up in New York. Just trading, yeah. trading things. Just, there you go. But some of their employees have the ampersand tattooed on oh, them. Yeah. So that I may be have, a little much. But I do some have of your one in my, get my some tattoos. My, yeah, my uh, the guy who does the coffee tech for us. His name is Raphael. He's been with us for a long time, and his father's a tattoo artist. And he always jokes that at some point soon he's going to get it somewhere, uh, which will. Will be an interesting thing to have. You all made it by then, yeah. you know? I've considered you? it too. I've got a handful of tattoos. I'm like, you know, maybe I should do it. But I'm like, yeah, it's. Every time I get a tattoo, my wife hates me a little bit more. Uh, so okay. she, not that she doesn't hate me, but she just does not like tattoos and I uh, have to beg her to let me do them. So half my tattoos are about her anyway, you know, okay. whether it's like, you know, art or uh, her spirit animal or whatever it is. So. That's how I make up for it. I'm like, oh, it's about you. So that's why I'm, yeah. you know. So if the logo is kind of like, I can't really spin that one to be like, this logo is about you uh, too. No, she has the same last name now, maybe. I guess. So. I guess. Uh, she wears glasses, so. She wears, yeah. yeah. The hair. If she I, cut she, her hair different, yeah. it would be good. The hair is not quite there, but yeah. uh, the glasses, yeah. <laughs> um, so I know I've taken a lot of your time, but so just kind of one more thing. How are you brewing community in D.C.? We are actually talking about putting together some throwdowns down here. So we do those up in New York. There's things called TNT NYC, like mm -hmm. Thursday night throwdowns. It's yeah, a series. yeah, we have TNTs here too. Yeah, so we were actually two of my team members actually were kind of in charge of running that for New York, like the New York community for a while. We hosted, I think, two of them, the citywide ones. And we recently hosted uh, Calafia Farms almond milk only throwdown that was citywide. That's kind of cool. Uh, and they reached out about doing it again. And I actually was pinging them about trying to do it down here in D.C. Yeah. So having like a almond milk only throwdown. Well, almond milk down... tough to steam. So well, that would be... it is, but the Calafia one, actually, you could do a pretty yeah. good amount of... So we had... It was amazing. Uh, the lots of art we were getting on the throwdown we did in New York with almond milk only, you know, very, very precise tulips and rosettas and all the stuff, swans, things that people like to try and do. So yeah. that milk actually can handle the steaming. So uh, we're pretty excited about trying to do something mm -hmm. like that. And building my team down here and building the community amongst my own staff, but also like interweaving that with the larger coffee community down here in DC is super yeah. important to me because we've done a pretty good job of that up in New York. And we definitely love to be part of the community and feel like we're all working together to make better coffee for the district down here. There you go. All tides raise all ships. That's right. Or raising tides. Rising <laughs> tides raise all ships. There, it goes. there, there we go. Goes. Yeah, yeah. Shoot. And then one last thing. Is there a restaurant that you've had in DC that you would recommend people to go to? And vice versa, New York, too. Yeah. The restaurant I've been to more than any down here is Arroz. The, I forget the name of the chef, but I feel like he just won, like, okay. eaters. What is like, it again? Arroz. It means, like, rice in Spanish. Arroz. Michael. Oh, I feel like Eater DC just named him the chef of the year or best new restaurant or something like that. He's got these bomba plates, these, like, oversized cool. rice concoctions with rice and all sorts of interesting things. But the way they cook it and, like, bake it in this huge skillet, it's delicious. So... I don't know what made me choose it once. Maybe I read something about it and I went and I thought it was really great. So okay. now whenever I'm down here and people come to visit, I haven't had so much time to find options that I found, but I know that one works really well. Okay. So and where's that? 
901 Massachusetts Avenue. It's Mike Isabella is the name Mike of the Isabella. Guy. Okay. So that's something I really have loved down here. Up in New York, as far as restaurants, your favorite comes one. in waves. I mean, I guess like my my family is Greek, so we, we like to go to these Greek restaurants too. But I mean, if I had to choose just one, I mean, this place, Locanda Verde, it's another like very famous chef and it's in the base of this Greenwich Hotel. Like uh, I think Robert De Niro owns the hotel or something like huh. that. But it's just like every time I go, it's just like amazing. Good service, great plates, you know, and just like staple food that you just can't go wrong. Sweet. So I, I can't wait to go there. back to New York now. Locanda Verde, yeah, it's a good one. You should huh. try it out. So yeah, trying to find more great options. If you have anything, you let me know down here to try out. I'll let you know. Yeah, I'm really interested in spreading our wings down here and getting more people from the district to try us out and understand what we're about. And also for us to kind of spread our wings and get out into the city and experience more stuff down here too. So like I said, I come down, it's a lot about work, but you know, I really love to explore the city. And I think, so I think the city is just so beautiful. Like all the not even just the buildings and the interesting government stuff going on, but uh, the Pentagon or beautiful, beautiful architecture and structures, but just even just generally, it's just a pretty place. Lots of park space, lots of green yeah. space, the Potomac, the river, you know, Georgetown, just like really, really pretty place to walk around. You know, I bring all my staff. I just tell them like when they come down here, I tell them before they do anything, just take a day and just go around because nice. you know, coming from New York, we've all been there for so long and you're used to seeing the concrete jungle up there and coming to a new city and seeing different things. I think D.C. is a, a really pretty place to yeah. walk around and just kind of experience it, you know? Yeah, just wait till spring, too, and oh, yeah. get your family down for the cherry blossoms. It is incredible. Yeah. It's not underrated. I mean, a lot of tourists, but there's just something really magical about it. So. All right. What time of year is that? Uh, it's like March and April. It depends okay. based on kind of the weather. But when all the cherry blossoms come out around the tidal basin. Yeah, I have to do that. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, uh, Gregory Zamfotis. Yes, sir. Gregory's Coffee. <laughs> so come out and try it. Uh, but thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thank you for having me. And that's a wrap, folks. Make sure you get out to Gregory's Coffee. I've put the cafe addresses in the show notes. Keep up to date with Gregory's Coffee on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Keep up to date with Drip, a DC Coffee podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter and Instagram. You know, I want to take a moment to share how excited I am about our coffee community. Over the past few weeks, I've had a few beers and coffees with different enterprising coffee folks to discuss new ideas, ways to collaborate, and to just partake in community. Perhaps more on that in future episodes. If you have any ideas or think your coffee story would make a good episode, feel free to fill out the contact form on dcdrippodcast.com. A quick thanks to Mike Crockett, the engineer, Broke Royals for music, Rebecca Silverstein for graphic and web design, and Wesley Stukenbroker for creative support. Thanks again for listening, and keep brewing community.